Welcome to How to Ruin Your Own Reputation, the show where I talk to people who live lives that some people don't quite understand and they live them unapologetically. My guest today spent 12 years working in the corporate world until the senior manager found out what she did in her other job, reported her, and ultimately got her fired. Interestingly, it was her work as a dominatrix that she felt contributed to her success in the corporate world. And as a result, she left that world and became a full-time professional dominatrix, which she finds incredibly fulfilling, not just for herself, but for the clients that she helps. And we're going we're gonna to ask a lot of questions. So welcome, Priestess Francesca. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. Well, I'm very, very excited to talk to you because I think your story is very interesting. And I've got a lot of questions. As I mentioned earlier, our listeners have a lot of questions for you. But before I get into that, because I honestly, I do want to know the nuts and bolts of how it works and what services you provide and the people that you work with. But I have to ask first, how this came about for you? Because I'm pretty sure you didn't grow up thinking, I'm going to be a dominatrix when I grow up. So how did that come to be? So when I was in college a bazillion years ago, I had a partner and we were practicing non-monogamy. And so at the age of 19, I was doing lots of exploring and we ventured into the world of kink. And what we didn't know at that time, we were doing a lot of like erotic mommy, erotic daddy play, but without those honorifics. And now in this moment of mental health awareness, I think we would kind of all know like, oh, we're reparenting our inner child. <laughs> so that's like the deep work that I was doing through kink at a very young age without really understanding what was happening there on a psychological level. But once I was in and I was having such profound growth and I was loving my partner more and more every day as we were exploring these really kinky dynamics. And in my 20s in New York City is where I was born and raised. I just threw myself into dark dungeons and orgies and all of that space. Um, and as I was exploring my own things, I was getting a lot of great feedback. Like, you're really good at this. You're really good at this. Can I send you a submissive that doesn't really know what they're doing? And da, da, da. And I, I was really hesitant at the beginning because there is so much stigma around it. And when I realized like how profound and touched I was through these connections and then with other people, it was kind of undeniable. I just came to terms with it. This is my soul's calling. This is what I'm meant to be doing. And as I expanded my boundaries more and more in the kink world. I really got into the psychological piece. And so I found a mentor, Mistress Damiana Chi, give her props. She's a PhD, wrote her whole dissertation on the erotic mind of the submissive man. So being in as a student of hers was life-changing for me. Through that work, I just, I never looked back. And she taught me all of the unique ways that femdoms can show up in the space. And I recognized all of the ways I was playing out psychological resistance and blocks and mental hurdles that I had. In the kink space, it was feeding into my work world, my corporate world. So that like insecurity of being the 
short. And I'm, you can't see now. I'm five two. I'm like 125 mm-hmm. pounds. I'm a little human, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I was working in New York City construction and doing technical sales. So my background's in mechanical engineering. I go into these workspaces. I've got my Timberlands on and my car hard. It's just like a fish out of water. So I needed mm. to dominate those spaces. And so I started really seeing these synergies between, oh, I, I get through this really tough thing in the kink world. And all of a sudden, I'm so much better at my work world, <laughs> you know? So... You went into the corporate world, though, after experimenting in the kink world? Because you started in the kink world quite young. Yeah, I did. I I was getting my mechanical engineering degree in mm. college, and then I entered into the construction industry when I was 21 years old. So I was really, like, exploring uh, okay. these realms in parallel for a very long time. And I assume it just made sense that this would be the kink side of you would be sort of the side part of you, the something that you did on your own for your own self-fulfillment, but then you would have a normal quote unquote job, not thinking that it was going to be the kink side of you that would be making you so successful in the corporate world. And ultimately your calling would not be in mechanical engineering. Right. And when I started my professional services while I was still working in the corporate world, It was just because I wanted my energy to be compensated. I wanted reciprocity. I wanted the time that I was putting into someone's kink education, development, well-being to be reciprocated. And so really when I started to take money for it, it wasn't because I wanted to start a, a side hustle and eventually grow a whole business. It was because I wanted to be honored and cherished and respected. That's amazing because I will tell you, as someone who I've struggled with that for a lot of my life, was not feeling like I was worthy enough at what I was doing to ask for the right amount of payment. I think a lot of women suffer from that. And I think it's great that you that you did see that. On a funny little side note, I will tell you that I was surprised a few weeks ago when I got a message from a stranger on Instagram, a gentleman who said that he was getting daddy vibes from me. And was interested in me dominating. And I'm like, not for free. <laughs> right. The same thing. I'm like, never considered it. Might. Not for free. So I think that's, I think that's pretty funny. So then what would differentiate say, a professional dominatrix from an amateur? Is it the payment? Is it studying? How does that work? Mm. So I have absolutely done so many entrainments with people so that I know how to hold this space safely. And not just in the kink world, but also in the energetic space. So you introduced me as Priestess Francesca. Priestess is my honorific. And I am holding this work as very holy and sacred work. And so my entrainments are also in the energetic sphere. How are we making sure that energetically we're doing this safely? Psychologically, how are we ensuring that our cords are separating after session and that we're not entering into codependency? How can I show up from a place of embodied love and heal all of the, I name it, the generational traumas that'll come up, all of your lives, all of the sexual stuff that lives somatically in our bodies, that's like cathartically is going to get released a lot of times in these kink scenes. I needed to learn how to shepherd people through a very chaotic, (laughs) very volatile because that's the kind of energy work that I'm bringing to the space. So 
I think there is often a messiness in, I would say, like personal random one-off play. But when you're working with a professional, mm. especially one who's taking a lot of care in the energy exchange that's happening, you're going to feel very contained in that space. And I would say that's a huge difference, the container that you're in. Ooh, you know, we've done other shows on kink and BDSM. And, and I think what's always been so interesting is because we don't know very much about it, because it's been underground, because of all the stigma, what we see on TV and in movies is just the sex part. You don't see the psychological, the emotional, any of that. And, and what's been a, a common message from the other shows we've done, it, it goes so much deeper yeah. than the physical. And I would think as you're talking about how you're really, you're connecting with these other people and helping them through these experiences that they've lived and their traumas, you must have had to do all that work on yourself to get to the point where you could do it and not even just danger yourself. Because I, I think with any kind of work you do, any kind of therapy type of work, there's always the danger of you being drained of your energy when you're trying to help someone else with theirs. So you must have been through a lot for yourself to get to the point where you can help other people. Mm, yes. And... <laughs> reclaiming the truth around how kink helped me to alchemize a lot of my own lived traumatic experiences and the traumatic experiences that I believe epigenetically were passed down through generational traumas into me. That was a real power play because it's so misunderstood in this world. One of the big kinks that I like to talk about is so Francesca, an Italian name, I come from a lineage of made men and wife beaters. And mm. that was a huge fantasy of mine to like be the domestic housewife in the kitchen whose mobster husband comes home and is angry and beats her up in the kitchen and makes a mess. I can say that out loud now to you, but mm -hmm. as I was going through it, I knew that would be so misunderstood if I like talked to my friends about that. But the truth is after, like I look back, that was about a decade ago that I was work really like working that part of me. I now know that was helping me heal. Stuff that I didn't realize I was holding on to, I didn't realize was living in my body. And it was such a beautiful catharsis. It was such a beautiful way to let those lived experiences of my family lineage, let that all go. You know, your body knows how to alchemize things. And my philosophy is that the sexual energy is healing energy. And when you have a fantasy, when you have a kink, trust that it's doing, I call it magic, you can call it energy work, like whatever scientific word you want to call it, your body's going to do magic with it if you just follow it. And so, yeah. Well, I think, I think that's the problem is that with our society, it's we criticize our own fantasies. And I think a lot of people would be blocked from working through them the way you did because they feel shame without even telling anyone, just with themselves. Somebody else might say, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I thinking? That's shameful. That's wrong. And they won't let themselves process it. But when you take the shame away from it and do what you just said, which is, okay, I'm thinking this and feeling this for a reason. There's a reason why I'm feeling this. Okay. Now what am I going to do with that? Let me understand that. And then you could work through it. Yeah. So that makes, it's just, we have to be 
we have to be fearless in dealing with the stigmas or else the stigmas will, will never go away. Oh, and it's so tricky because people's fears in sharing these things, they're valid. I mean, even go back to like the introduction, I got fired for it, you know, and mm -hmm. thank goodness I saved up some money. And so that I didn't have to be begging for this uh, terrible job back, you know, it's like, thank goodness I didn't have to do that. But fears can be real. And a lot mm -hmm. of the work that I'm doing with humans is one, de-shamifying their fantasies and also teaching them levels of discernment that's really important to navigate this super tricky world that we're in right now. So one of my teachers likes to say, like, don't put your pearls before swine. Most humans might not understand this. And mm -hmm. I'm out here now talking because I've gotten to a place of fortification in myself where it's like zero fucks given. But I know that a lot of people are not in that yes. position. So I'm doing the speaking for them. And know that you don't have to go out there and just start talking about all of your fantasies to people who are not going to get it. And they're just going to re-traumatize you. Like, that ain't the move, you know? I say that all the time, too, because I'm in, in the same way that you do that. It's speaking out and sharing my story was the exact same thing. It was very liberating for me, but I understand that other people don't feel strong enough and, and aren't in a place where they feel protected enough that they can do that. But I always say also, if you can tell one person you trust, or even just find a way, even if you just write it out and be comfortable with it yourself, it's so helpful because it's when we keep that inside that it does so much damage. Now, when you were fired, was mm -hmm. there relief when they called you in? Was there some relief or how, how did that work? You know, I think I want to put this disclaimer for some legality is that they never fully said the why. It was through mm -hmm. grapevine conversations and my internal spy network <laughs> kind of got all of this feedback and knew that I was in a position of having a target on my back for a while. And so I found out that one of my managers knew and I knew that he had put a target on my back for a couple of years. And I, I, intuition, we all have very intuitive powers. You don't always need to be told something explicitly um, mm. to, know, to know the truth. What I will say is it was disorienting and mm. it was really sad that something like this had to happen because I really do believe that it was my work as a professional dominatrix that made me so great at what I was doing. And if they had only opened up a conversation with me, okay, you want, to, you want me to like tweak my website, maybe take my face off of my pro-dom website? Like maybe there's a negotiation we could have, but it was such an ignorant move. And I think that was the hurtful part is that mm. ignorance really does harm. And I had built a family at that corporation. And after 12 years, it's hard to just be kicked to the curb. It was like being disowned by mm. kind of the only employment family that I knew. And that's sad, no matter how like tough the employment was. Now, when you did decide, okay, so forget that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to what I feel my soul calling is, and you're going to do this full time. How do you do that? How do you get clients? One of the questions that, that somebody wanted me to ask you is, how do you get clients? And 
did you ever feel like you were putting yourself in danger? Mm. The safety one is always a question that comes up. And I usually say, I am putting myself in no more danger than I would if I go to a bar on a Saturday night and get drunk. Very true. Straight up. Very true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So getting clients, especially in the beginning when I was still working, it was really word of mouth, which was such a beautiful testament to the experiences that I was giving people that they felt safe enough Mm -hmm. to go to other people in the kink community, let them know some of my expertise, because I will go on the fringe with some of my dark play. Uh, (laughs) We're going to talk about that. I I will go on the fringe. Yeah. so, so a lot of it was word of mouth. And it's interesting too, you can't, we can't rely on social media to find people. I've been banned on Instagram. I've been banned on TikTok. So none of that. I would go to communities. And because I have a very spiritual anchor in this kink work, a lot of my clients would come from spiritual communities who felt totally grossed out by that love and light like heavenly flowers and rainbows kind of expression of sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was very, it was whitewashy. It's spiritual bypassy. It's dripping in its colonial programming. Like I can go on and on about how problematic that space mm-hmm. is. Oh, and yep. when they found me, it was this total resonance. So finally, oh, this is true. Both the dark and light of all things are created equal. And so one of my mentors says that dominatrices are just light workers who play in the dark. And I fully believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that. Say it again. I like that. Dominatrices are just light workers who play in the dark. Mm. Nice and sad. Yeah. All right, Francesca, I want to know, share, explain, let's get into it. What is it that you do? What are the services that you offer? Let's talk about some of that stuff that you just mentioned. One of my specialties that I think a lot of humans in this space, they don't really dabble in, is dirty mommy play, dark age play. And I'll give some content trigger warnings before we go into talking about this, just in case your listeners want to do a pause. (laughs) forward. (laughs) We could be talking about non-consensual sexual exchange. We could be talking about incest, child sexual play. So I just want to give a name before I get into the details, Mm -hmm. if anyone wants to pause. Um, So a lot of my mommy play, I'll go into ABDL, which is adult baby diaper lover. And there is such a thirst. I really want to destigmatize this one because we always see the the doms tying someone up, whipping them, hitting them. But I want to destigmatize ABDLers because there's so much shame around it. These are humans who want to regress in terms of mental age space to mm. a place where they're potentially nonverbal, where they're really surrendering into the care of someone. And there could be physical pain that's existing there that could be part of the play. But the main thing is they're regressing back. And the play of having diapers on can take so many different forms. Dirtying a diaper in all the ways. Dirty mommy play could be really dark. You know, I could 
play in a rape space with someone who just had a diaper on. There's a very different energetic in that space. It can really get deep into the psyche of someone when you're saying things like, well, don't you want to be good for mommy? This is how you're good for mommy. And then you move into really dirty play. And this is how you're good for mommy keeps getting Mm -hmm. in your head. And so it's a really delicate space that we go into in these worlds. And I mean, I see your reaction. There's so many ways where psychologically this could be re-traumatizing and it takes a very sharpened blade, as I call it, to hold a container for that. When they come to you, when somebody comes to you with something so deep and really trusting in you, Mm. is there a way of knowing psychologically what they're, where they're coming from, if where they're coming from maybe isn't a healthy place, maybe is a dangerous place, maybe they're, I'm not even sure how to put it. Like I'm thinking they're coming to you. It's something that, that from the outside world sounds horrible, but they're coming to you. They're not acting out something that is dangerous to somebody else. They're working through it with you in a safe place is working through something with them. But is there some kind of, and I'm sure there isn't, but I'm thinking psychological background that you have to know about them before you're willing to act out certain things? Yes, totally. So okay. I think also the difference between a personal random exchange and with a professional is I have a whole checklist okay. of questions that I have, including some psychological questions. And in my own process, I won't just take someone the next day, right? We're going to build this trust and this connection with the two of us. And that's part of my own process around how I hold back to your question around safety. Like, how do I keep myself psychologically safe? I'm going to keep you in connection for a while to really deeply understand what's happening. And I have a process for that. I have intake lessons, intake self-awareness practices, like all of these things. I need you to build this foundation Mm. in order to be with me. I call it like you come through the gates of the temple one gate at a time. And so before you get into the center gate with me, there are checks and balances that are happening. What I will say, though, is I've been called a pedophile for doing dirty mommy play And what I want to name is that this has nothing to do with children. And (laughs) these are two consenting adults who are practicing out and carrying out a play scene that is fun for us. And that's what I name it. This is adult playtime. And we get to do whatever we want in playtime. We try not to police kids with the building blocks. They're exploring. They're doing what, whatever their inspiration is taking them. And so adults get to have playtime too. Whatever inspiration you want to do, you want to put on a diaper and come latch onto mommy's breast, then okay, let's play. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I mean, the key words right there are consenting adults. That's it. That's the key right there. All right. What else? What else is your, is your specialty or, or, or things that people 
the most common or uncommon things that people come to you for? Yeah, I find a lot of the kink expressions to be very ritualistic. Like I can tether so many expressions back to what I would consider like ancient priestess lineage rituals. And so golden showers or drinking golden nectar, that is so sacred to me. Not everyone gets my golden nectar. Those are like for the special ones, you know? But it's such a beautiful exchange of my fluid to another human being as a sign of devotion and worship of the goddess, of the greater power that is kind of living in all of us. One of the kinks that I find very, and I, part of me doesn't even think this is a kink, but getting pegged, pegging is mm-hmm wildly popular and it is so stigmatized because of homosexuality and it really is I consider it piecework like pegging men is piecework because if I help them move through the shame that they are experiencing in asking for this experience their subconscious programming around homophobia will shift. I've seen it so many times happen. They could be out there in the world saying that they are not homophobic, but if you are saying I'm not homophobic and I don't want to ask my partner to peg me, there's something there. There's an incongruency. You as a human are fragmented because you're saying one thing and you're doing another. And I've seen a lot of men start to gain confidence asking their partners for what would be considered taboo through the working with the professional. And we, you know, the professionals are de-shamifying this stuff for you so that you can go out into the world and ask for what you desire. Ask for it. I feel like pegging is becoming more spoken about lately. I do think it's something that is coming out of the shadows a little bit, but you're right. It's totally based on homophobia. I think a lot of men are afraid to ask. A lot of men want kind of the butt play, but are afraid to ask for it because what does that mean? Whereas really it just, it's pleasure. You're seeking pleasure. There's nothing wrong with seeking pleasure. So that's- In my practice of pegging, it's the returning, the male bodied or humans with a penis to a yin field two states of receptivity. So, so often Mm -hmm. humans with penises are conditioned to hold up everything. Mm -hmm. And if they show any signs of vulnerability, I've heard this on other shows, any signs of vulnerability, they are emasculated. And there is a deep thirst for them to return to these states of vulnerability and receptivity. They just don't have those words for it. So because there's an imbalance energetically in them, it comes out through erotic desire. (laughs) And hence, I now want to be pegged. Of course you want to be pegged. Of course you want to return to a state of just being and not doing because all you're doing in life is doing, doing, doing. Of course, that's where your erotic nature is going to take you. And it's interesting because now I think there's such an influx of the negative stuff that we're seeing online about alpha males and all this, what does it mean to be an alpha and how men should be alphas, where that's going exactly against what you're saying that men really need is to be able to not 
feel like they need to be in charge of everything. I know I've always heard that a lot of times when a man will use the services of a dominatrix, it's oftentimes they come from very high powered positions in their work life. And they want a space where they can not be the one in charge, where they can be the one that's taking the orders. Is that a thing? Totally. (laughs) (laughs) And I see humans from all walks. I mean, really. So yes, that is certainly it, where they are deeply craving a place where they can be held, where they don't have to think, where they can turn their mind off. That's definitely part of it. And it's interesting because a lot of the power dynamic play that I do is not what I would call like that pure play, mistress, slave play. I can Mm. go there. But a lot of times we're exploring role plays and archetypes that are so out of the norm of everyday life. Um, And I think that ability to go into imagination space is so deeply healing for people. I mean, all humans, they go to work, they have to-do lists, they've got methods of procedures, operating forms to fill out. Like you're on a track most days. When you go into this space of erotic expression and playtime, you're finally letting your imagination come and join you. It's really beautiful. It's so beautiful. Is there anything that you've been asked to participate in that you won't do? Uh, yes, I do have, I have limits. So <laughs> all, I, I yeah, don't have a mom that doesn't have limits. So for biological, physical safety, I don't participate in scat play, which is feces. So when I do dirty diaper play, I'll, you can, you can pee in the diaper. You can ejaculate in the diaper. Those are the kinds of dirtying that I like, but I don't participate in scat. And that's just because I don't really want, I don't want to do that. (laughs) No. That's a good reason enough. (laughs) No. Um, Needle play and blood play can be really tricky. Mm -hmm. So when we're playing in public spaces, public dungeons, a lot of them will have limits for their own cleanliness and hygiene, can't do that. If I'm playing in hotel rooms, I'm not gonna risk bloodying a poor hotel bed for someone else. (laughs) So there just, there are those boundaries and it really does come down to hygiene and cleanliness for me in terms of just like germs and cleanup and, and things. But I really enjoy going to the fringes, really enjoy going to the edges and, I usually say that if it is a fantasy of yours, I have ideas around it. Let's make Ooh. magic. <laughs> can you, can you, just for the sake, can you explain another one? I know you explained some of sort of those fringe. Mm. Yeah, the dark age play is certainly on the fringe. I want to say cock and ball torture also has a lot of stigma around it. Having pain in that place. And so often cock and ball torture will be used as punishment. So if I'm punishing someone and kicking their testicles, like one that's very fun for me, but there are people who enjoy pain in that part of their body. And I'll speak candidly about my own sexuality. I love having my 
pussy smacked. Like there was a huge time where I was like, I want this thing smacked. I want to feel pain here. That feels so good for me. So I think we can kind of, for any vulva owning humans, <laughs> kind of like do a little swap. If you've ever enjoyed having pussy smacked, <laughs> it's the same <laughs> sensation of like wanting to have your balls hit. And that is- it a really phys- Was it a physical release or an emotional release or both? I think there's always an element of both. There's- because there's somatically, we are so connected to our bodies. I never separate the two. But I, I think that's a real stigma to say, I want you to torture my cock and balls. And I could, man, can I go to town? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely an interesting thing to put on a resume. I can give you one more that's really on the fringe. And it was, it was a personal partner of mine. It's called VOR, V-O-R, which is the desire and the kink to be eaten is the only word in the English language that I have, but it's, you didn't, you're not actually being devoured. You're just totally engulfed in another human. It almost feels like a return to the womb kind of energy. Like I want to be fully in you, like engulfed. And it was something that they had played from a fantasy. There is a lot of hentai, which is the Japanese comic porn culture that will play with vor. So you'll see someone actually being devoured and then stuck inside of their body and finding but a you, All right. So how do you, how does that? Yeah. So you, what I, what I did was <laughs> I bound him to a bed, bound him to a bed. And then he still had his pants and his belt on. And I had his head in between my legs, right up on my pussy and totally blindfolded so that he couldn't see. And there was an element of me pulling his whole body into my body. And I was saying all of these things about how he was getting deeper and deeper into me. And then I started playing with blankets and like covering him with these weighted blankets one and the other. And so he started to actually feel like he was being engulfed by me. That was a really fun one to think creatively. How can I do this in the physical space? <laughs> wow. Do you ever work with somebody who wanted to know if you ever work with couples? Mm-hmm. Yes. So one of the fun ways that I work with couples is through safely opening a relationship. I love working with couples who want to explore ethical non-monogamy, polyamory, any of those dynamics, because I've been non-monogamous since I was, I had my first threesome at 17, actually, (laughs) and then formally, (laughs) formally non-monogamous by 19. But I have kind of been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I have made all of the mistakes Mm -hmm. and hiring a professional is one of the greatest choices that a couple can make if they are deciding to explore. Hire a sex worker for that. Because what happened, <laughs> the, one of the great examples is I had a couple come and work with me. They were so shaky in these mm-hmm. desires. And it's really interesting because the wounds and the conditionings, it was a heterosexual couple, so I'll use he and she pronouns. He was concerned about making sure that she felt safe. 
she was concerned about breaking all of the church rules, but they both knew that they wanted this desire. And working with me over the course of an eight-month period, we got to go really slowly. And in training on how to communicate about what's going on in my body, what's okay, what's not okay, what's coming up for me, we're not taught how to have these conversations, which I think is one of the things the kink world does phenomenally. We, you go to any kink workshop and there's always one on like com how to communicate your boundaries. <laughs> we do that really well. So in training them on how to talk about what's okay right now, what feels good, what's coming up for me, I need to take back my consent in this moment. This is my inner child screaming. My attachment style is getting so anxious. I'm freaking out. What happens when you're working with a professional sex worker is a lot of the threats that come up to say going out and getting a unicorn to have a threesome yeah. and it gets really sloppy and really messy real fast because y'all don't know what you're doing. I'm not here to threaten anyone's relationship. I'm here to support the evolution of your dynamic. It's like defenses dissolve. There's a mutual understanding that a wedge is not coming in here. And success story, eight months later, they're going to Mexico for at nudist resorts and swingers resorts. Eight months. And they're having a goddamn blast, you know? So... I yes. will say also, I'm going to share just a little bit about myself too. I think that's great advice to go to a professional sex worker. I think a hundred percent, I would add that worse than not going to a sex worker and just finding kind of, you know, don't use someone, don't make the third a friend, not a good idea. But I think what's, what's so great about what you're saying is that you're tackling the physical part of it. So you're letting them explore that part, but then you're also helping them deal with the emotional, psychological stuff for themselves, but also understanding each other. Because if you go at it, just, oh yeah, we're just going to try it because it sounds like fun. So each person is going to deal with their own feelings around what they're doing, but then they're also going to be concerned about what the other person is thinking about what they're doing. And then also what the other person's thinking. So that's a lot of stress to put on, which should be a fun, connective activity. So by going to you, you're kind of helping them deal with that which makes it an easier transition. And I will say this, I've said we've done shows on BDSM, we've done shows on open relationships and polyamory. And the one thing is that communication in all of those, let's say, uh, alternative relationships, communication is key. And I have found that more, there's more open communication, I'm gonna generalize, forgive me, in those kind of relationships than in regular relationships, monogamous relationships. Well, that's what, what it's been my experience as well. I find that there has to be communication for an, any kind of non-traditional relationship to work. And you have to be willing to put that in. Whereas in a traditional monogamous relationship, you're not really taught how to communicate the same way. And so I think that there, again, the stigma around, I've had people say, oh, how can you be committed to somebody if you're in an open relationship? You can be very committed to somebody while being in an open relationship. Yeah. Another question that somebody wanted to know was, does your family know? Somebody said specifically, what do her parents think she does? Mm -hmm. uh, I came out. I came out, out and proud. Out and proud. 
And um, <laughs> I love that someone asked this question. You know, we don't need to get into every detail of my work. I mean, my parents don't need to know that, but they've seen my website. They know that I see clients. They sometimes they ask questions, their curiosity gets the better of them. And they ask a couple of things. I'll hold healthy boundaries with them because there are some things that I do not want to share with my parents either, but they know. And it took a minute for them to adjust because I had been building robots since I was in sixth grade and total geek. And then went on this trajectory and was wildly successful at this corporation doing technical sales in New York City construction. And they just saw this shift. And what they didn't know is that I had been in this scene since I was 19. And so when I started mm -hmm. telling them, honestly, my story and my pathway and that I had been doing this on the side, but just as because it's what I love to do, and I decided to get money for it too. Then they started to put some two and two together. They're like, oh, is that what that trip was for? Oh, is that what that? <laughs> you know? Well, so it's pretty impressive that they just needed a minute. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. Your background growing up, did you have a religious, spiritual, was it an open kind of hippie-ish upbringing? What was that like? So really interesting. I grew up in the Catholic church, good Italian family. and. My parents, though, had, I would say, a progressive sex view. And so my mom would walk around pretty free, answer questions that I don't think most mothers would be super comfortable answering. I remember walking in on my mom when I was four years old, putting a tampon in, and I was so confused. And she explained it in a way that I understood and it was age appropriate, but also she wasn't ashamed of it. She wasn't like, oh, go away. I'll teach you later. When you're, this is for when you're older. No, she like explained it in a really calm way. And I remember that. And I'm sure that's one of these like monumental moments of parenting where if she had done that any differently, maybe I wouldn't have grown up the way that I did. I give them a lot of credit. I really do. This was, it's big. They're not the most comfortable. Would they love me to go back to corporate? I'm sure. I'm sure they would. You know, what parent doesn't want safety and security for right. their children? But what I say to them is that safety and security is an illusion. It's mm -hmm. not real in life. So you have to build your own. And this is what the universe has told me is my soul's calling. So I'm going to follow. Something else somebody wanted to ask that I thought was pretty funny is um, somebody wanted to know if you ever get this uncontrolled urge to giggle. <laughs> Did they give any clarifications to when? Because answer, yeah. Like, like, well, I think it's when, yeah, I think it's when, you know, when you're being really, when you're, you have to be really forceful and really dominant and something is just making you laugh. Can funny. you, you yeah. stifle it or? <laughs> totally. So what happens like in scenes, regardless of how intense they are, like there will be funny things that happen. We are, <laughs> it can be comical. And what I will do in scene is allow for the laughter, allow for the humor, even from the submissive also. Let's just enjoy the moment as two adults. Like we're clearly going to break character. 
And then when I feel it, I'll look at them and I'll say, I get to laugh, you don't get to laugh. And then we're back. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody else asked, it's interesting. They said, does it ever stray from something physical and just be, I want you to, you, you, I want you to take over my finances or I want you to clean my house. Could it be something that's not obviously sexual? Mm-hmm. Totally. Service submission is a great example. I have service subs who will do my domestic duties and there's an expectation that they are worshiping, they're worshiping me through their service. And so they know I have a lot on my plate. They know I'm busy and they're going to come and do my laundry. They're going to come and clean. And I love those submissives. Yes, is please. It, more of you. How do you... <laughs> I think I missed my calling. All right. You're... <laughs> Where was this on career day at school? I don't understand. <laughs> I feel like we really missed it. All right. Um at some of the questions. Do you find that there's an average age of clientele that you get? Mm, No, all over the map. So my youngest client that I got was 23 Mm -hmm. and the oldest was in his 60s. And I am fascinated. This is one of those data points that I want to start collecting is like the generational differences between how they approach conscious kink sacred BDSM, ritualistic BDSM, there seems to be, with this Gen Alpha, a real reclamation. They are building something. They are, I'm an old millennial, and I kind of say it was our job to put our bodies out there as we were taking shots from all of these systems and say, we are the last ones that you mess with. And then we look forward and we say, go, run, it's not here. <laughs> and they're kind of looking at us saying, well, where do we go? And it's on them to build the next thing. Like they're the ones who are going to build the next future. And I think they're really understanding these alternative modalities of healing and alchemizing. And although I wouldn't call kink therapy, it is certainly therapeutic. And they're aware of what we're doing in this space. Whereas I find some of my older clientele can be removed from that truth. So there's more shame, do you think, with the older clients and more of a pleasure seeking with the younger one? Because I approach it with such a spiritual focus, the clientele that comes to me is still aware. They're not hedonists. And I, I, I don't work with hedonists, people who just want to come for an hour and play for a little bit. I'm oh. not the person that you come to. I have so many beautiful humans in, that I'm in network with that I can refer you to. But as the honorific kind of nods to as, as the priestess, we're doing deep energy work here. And it's why I'm so intentional about what we're doing. And so I also work with souls from the other side. And I tell people like, I don't know, dead people might come through during our scenes. That's just how the portal works with me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a whole other type of voyeurism. That's a whole other level. Have you ever had situations? I'm going to guess, yes, being with my zero knowledge of this. 
do clients ever develop feelings for you? Mm-hmm. I, I've got to think that they have. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to know how that gets navigated for me? Please. And I would love for more humans in the space to adopt this. A lot of people will conflate the feeling that they get when they're in a container of complete embodied love. No judgment, no shame, no need to be anything other than you are, truly. And they conflate that experience of being in the presence of embodied love with romantic love because it's the only kind of love that we've been programmed to know. And so when I have humans developing an attachment to me, because that's what I'm feeling, I'm not feeling that it's love, it's an attachment to how they feel about themselves in space with me, I educate them and I say, how beautiful that you now know what it feels like to be in the present. You now hold a flask of this sacred nectar of what it feels like to be in the presence of no judgment, no shame, embodied love. This is what you should be feeling when you are in partnerships. And what a lesson for you to learn around what's your yes and what's your no when you go out in the dating world. Well, I'm listening to that. And the first thing I'm thinking of is how rare is that though? I mean, when you first started explaining that, I was thinking, okay, because that doesn't happen often. That's what we're told to look for. That's what we're told to accept. That's what we're told to want and to need. But honestly, I wonder how many people in long-term committed relationships feel that kind of acceptance, feel that they can be 100% them. I bet it's not many. No. I bet it's not many. And so I wonder if it's, if it's almost making it harder for them to then find relationships because they're like, well, wait a second. <laughs> this isn't what I felt before. And it's almost an unrealistic expectation because how often can you be with somebody who does, who you can be so yourself with and not have to worry that there's going to be even a little, little bit of judgment. That's tough to find. Because it's tough to find because it has to do with what work that person has done on themselves. Mm. So I'm a firm believer as within, without. Someone can't hold you in non-judgment and shame because they haven't themselves de-shamified their own. They don't love themselves. They can't show up for you like that because they don't show up for themselves like that. So I hear you. I mean, for me, I have a sacred sex worker that I hire. Because I find it quite difficult to be held in sacred spaces, in sexual expression, where I can just be fully myself. And I have walked my own walk. (laughs) I I have hire a sex worker for that. I can't find it in the dating pool. Then I will hire a professional to remind me that I'm I'm just fine. (laughs) Yeah. It is interesting that I've even seen when I used to be on dating sites, there were people who would ask, they sort of say what they're looking for, very specific things. And I think, okay, you're looking for a sex worker. And there is a lot of stigma. There is a lot of stigma around that. I was speaking with a a career sex worker 
uh, prostitute. And we were talking about this and all the stigma, but there's, but sex work covers so many different, so many different things. And I think the reason, obviously the reason why sex work is seen so negatively and stigmatized is because sex still has stigma. And especially if it's non-traditional sex, then that has stigma, but it's such a waste of energy. And going back to something that you said, because you're right, when you talked about, when I said that it's difficult to really be your open, honest self in front of somebody else. I know also, even for myself, I carried a lot of shame with things in my past. And it was only when I was able to get rid of the shame for myself that I could share myself with other people, just in, in even just telling my story. But it became less important that the other people didn't judge me because I stopped judging myself. And I think that's a key thing. Like nobody can shame you for something you're not ashamed of. Right. So I think when you work through that yourself, probably it's easier for you to open up because you were only connecting with people who are open to that. So it really does come down to yourself and working through these things yourself. And I think if, I also don't think it's even fair to put that on somebody else. If you're working through traumas, if you're working through things from your past, I think you're doing yourself a service by seeking professional help, but also your future partners. Because I think oftentimes people do expect our partners to, to pick up a lot of the work that we can't do ourselves. And I don't think that's fair. I think we're all working on ourselves. We can lean on our partners, but we can't expect them to save us. And I think it's really important for us to understand not to feel shame around anything that we're feeling, but also not to keep it inside and to seek out somebody who can help us in a professional realm. Yeah. Yes. And I'll go back to the question about, do my parents know and why did it only take a minute for them? One of the big things that I attribute it to is the amount of de-shamifying this work in my own soul before going to them. So I didn't go and share this truth of mine with two people who, whose opinion I obviously value, <laughs> but I didn't go to them seeking validation. I went to them and I said, this is my truth. This is me, period. Like there's no other conversation. I wasn't seeking your, their validation. And it changes the energy of how that conversation unfolds you'll know you're on a slippery slope when that statement ends in a question mark. This is me? Because really what you're asking, is it okay that this is me? Mm -hmm. It's so, so interesting that you're saying that because I'm remembering when I wrote my memoir and it was going to be published and I remember speaking to somebody, a professional about, okay, I'm going to be telling my children certain things about my past, or at least it's going to be out there. And, and her advice to me was exactly what you just said, was don't apologize for it. Yeah. this is your truth and you're sharing your truth, but don't apologize for it. You don't have to apologize. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. When you are comfortable, then you're, you're presenting it in a very, very different way. Yeah. One thing I have to ask because it came up so many times <laughs> people wanted to know is safe words. How did they come up and what's been the silliest safe word that you've used? What a fun question. I'm so shocked. <laughs> this was like the most thumbed up. Yeah, the most upvoted question about safe words. So this happens in negotiations. I keep it actually very simple in the beginning. I find that only like 
I don't want to say just professionals, but very experienced players can connect a ridiculous word. So I think that's actually very media <laughs> enhanced. Like that's one of those pineapple or porcupine. <laughs> it's you're in usually in these spaces. If you are about to call red, you're probably potentially becoming disassociated. You could be triggered. So you could be in total freeze mode where your brain is not going to register. If I say pineapple, the person doing this thing is going to stop. So this is also the difference between a professional and an amateur is that we are going to be trained to really negotiate all of the things in terms of psychological safety. So not only do I negotiate safe words, which I use as the basic green, yellow, red. Green is everything's good. Yellow is, ooh, this is intense. Not sure. We're, we're dicey here. And then red is like, whoa, 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 stop. Uh, I'll start there. If we get to be more experienced together, I will weave in blue and orange, which is blue if you want more, harder, more fringe, intense, darker. <laughs> and then orange if, if you're like, wow, I'm really getting close. I don't want the scene to stop, though. I'm okay. But let's back it off a little bit, right? Those are very experienced players who can have those kinds of feedback loops. But a professional will also include in your negotiations conversation what your trigger looks like. What is your trauma response? If it's fight, you will go into a bratty behavior, potentially. Mm. If it is flight, you might be physically pulling away from me. So if I'm hitting someone's ass and I don't see your body coming back into position for the next hit, you're literally trying to run away from me. And then freeze. I will like their the eyes will glaze over. I can see they've really become disassociated. And so there are ways that I'm incorporating their own awareness of their trauma response into the scene and how I'm going to hold them safely. And I would say the aftercare plan is if everything goes well, right? You want snuggles and you want all of those things. Another big part of my negotiation is, okay, well, what if it doesn't? So the aftercare plan is if everything goes well, our mm -hmm. trigger plan is if it doesn't go well and you're getting triggered with something and you're moving into one of these trauma responses, we're going to negotiate up front. What is it that nourishes you and makes you feel safe in those moments? Some people, if you try to touch them when they are being triggered, you are mm -hmm. going to spiral them, right? So having the awareness of the person that I'm holding in a very vulnerable and risky space is really important to me, which is why my intake process is super intense. <laughs> I, I bet nobody, I didn't even realize how much goes into that, which again, professional versus amateur. Now, if somebody wants to contact you, we're going to have all your information. We're going to have all that in the show notes. But what would a first communication look like mm. if they contact you for the first time? I always do a drop-in practice because I find that everyone's really nervous. 
<laughs> so in aligning practice where we're breathing together, we're connecting in a grounded way. And then we're going to move into anything that feels very burning for them to share. A lot of times they'll come into this call with me. And although I might have a flow that I like to arc the conversation through, I call it like there's frenzy. But I am really honest that we're not going to, if it's Tuesday, we're not connecting on a Friday. And you're not going to have me from like 6 to 7 p.m. We're going to go deep. And so mm. I say to them, five hours is what you will be in space with me. We are no joke here. <laughs> wow. Without getting too personal with your rate, I'm just curious listening to this. Is there a price range? Like, I'm just curious, how, how do you even know what to charge people today if it's so mm -hmm. personalized? What feels fair for me is potentially not what other doms will feel is a fair tribute. And the reason is because on the other side of the session, and I put this disclaimer in all of my emails that I am a sacred sexual healer and divine dominatrix and sex magic practitioner. And so my energy work does not stop when you walk out the door. In truth, my work happens one day, two day, three days, just for my own containment and energy work. That's how much I'm alchemizing and transmuting. And it lays me up. Like I'll be straight up. It lays me up. I can't do more than one or two of those in a week. It'll drain me. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's different for me with my sessions is you have me on Telegram for two weeks after our five-hour, what I call mini retreats. So things, emotions, attachments, <sighs> you're, you're wrangling with these things that are going to come up that you might not even understand. You have me on Telegram for two weeks, which is the most vulnerable yeah. time to just talk it out with me. And then, also non-negotiable, I included a call with one of my integration specialists. I really appreciate this conversation. I love when people will go deep and honest. I think it's necessary to say all the time. It's the conversations that may make people uncomfortable that are the ones that we should be having more often so that they become less uncomfortable. <laughs> Before I let you go, and I said, again, all your information will be in our show notes, but is there anything that you want to say? I want to make sure that before I let you go, that you've said everything that you feel that you need to say on the subject and about yourself. What I'd like to offer to your audience, because if there was someone listening that has been struggling with accepting and loving some of the more taboo and less understood parts of them, I'd like to offer that if you feel called, you can set up a call with me for free. And all you have to do is somewhere in that thing, I want to do a special for your listeners because I'm, so, I'm so appreciative of telling my story. Um, let's go with ruin them. <laughs> ruin them. So on my website, I'm sure it'll be, I know it'll be in the show notes. There's a book, a call link, and we will go deeper than what I usually, those are like 15 minutes, but I will allocate a full 45 yeah. with any of your listeners for free. If you put in the intake form, ruin them. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your story with me in such an authentic and genuine way. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for spending your time with me.
And thank everyone for listening. And I hope you learned a little something so we can understand more and judge a little less. See you next week and how to ruin your own reputation. Thank you, Mahiti. Thank you.